Set a spark to your integrated business and marketing strategies with America's top entrepreneurs and business leaders here at Integrate and Ignite with your host, Lori Jones. Welcome to the Integrate and Ignite podcast. Alan Adamson, co-founder and managing partner of Metaforce, is a noted industry expert in all disciplines of branding. He has worked with a broad spectrum of consumer and corporate businesses in industries ranging from packaged goods and technology to healthcare and financial services to hospitality and entertainment. With his perspective and in-depth and in and depth of experience, Alan helps his clients understand and activate strategies that enable them to shift ahead of the market and the competition, generating long-term value and increased brand equity. He is the author of Shift Ahead, a book that explains how the best organizations recognize when it's time to change direction and how they pull it off while bolstering their brands. Welcome to Integrate and Ignite, Alan. Thanks for having me. A pleasure to be here. I tell you, it's all my pleasure. Tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you to write an amazing book, Shift Ahead. Thanks. Yeah, I, I started in brand marketing at uh, Unilever and worried about getting people to uh, use different types of soaps and uh, dishwashing liquids. And you learn a lot about marketing in a category like that because the difference <laughs> between one bar of soap and the other is not as profound as perhaps the manufacturers would like you to believe. So you really right. learn how to target and positioning. Then I went into the advertising business a bit and worked across a range of categories, helping uh, companies and products uh, sharpen their story. Finally, I worked in the field of brand and branding at a firm called Landor, where we worked across even more categories. And from that, I, you know, I think I got a pretty good sense of how to look at a situation and help a company or a client tell their story in a more powerful way to their customer and to the marketplace. So you're not the only one that believes that you've been, you know, on Squawk Box, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Ad Age, USA Today, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on regarding your expertise and, and that people think of it. So congratulations to you. Thanks. But, you know, one of the things I found is that more and more clients were coming to me and saying, hey, you know, our sales are going down. Uh, people are not finding us that interesting anymore. Can you help? And what became clear uh, over the years is that it wasn't that, you know, they needed a new ad campaign or new packaging or a new promotion or a new way to say, hey, look at me. They had become their father's Oldsmobile. They, you know, no matter how much marketing and advertising and promotion you did, you were not going to get people to buy their product. And I said, gee, is it just me or more and more companies struggling to stay relevant, to keep up with the change? And uh, right. hooked up with a colleague at NYU, uh, Professor Steckel, and we did a fair amount of research and said, gee, is the pace of change, not only in technology, but across lots of categories, causing more and more companies to fall behind and struggle to a point that no amount of marketing or advertising or spin is going to get them out of the ditch. And that was right. the case. Well, and, and we know that ongoing disruption is really the lifeblood of many, many companies You and their ability to stay relevant to their audiences. Talk to us more about what your theory is regarding survival of the fittest, if you will, as it pertains to disruption. Yeah, part of it is uh, the answer to how do you prevent yourself from becoming your father's Oldsmobile is 
is to really focus on the basics. And I don't think we'll share anything that people say, oh my God. But it turns out that the winners in today's marketplace tend to be better at execution, faster to move. Um, and so one of the first things we found out is that most, most companies didn't start shifting until they were out of gasoline to do anything. In other words, they were waiting, looking around and everything's good. Most of them were on what I call cruise control. Like when you're driving a car, you put it on autopilot and you're really driving, but you're not really paying attention and everything's fine. And most executives leading big companies and small companies were becoming a little bit like Marty Crane in the old Fraser show, where, you know, the familiar and the old was comfortable. They went into the office, they went into their place of work, and they did what they did yesterday. And they, you know, they're very good at doing what they did yesterday, but zooming out and saying, am I doing the right thing? Am I focusing on the right things? Is really hard. And by the time sales start tumbling, it's often really diminishes your chance for reinventing your business. One, because your revenue is going down. Two, another important point is lots of talent starts to go away. You know, you start to lose people when you can't give good raises or can't give promotions. Young people and talented people are attracted to fast growing companies. And if your company is going in reverse, not only are you running out of money, you're going to be running out of talent as well. Well, I think one of the iconic or a couple of the iconic examples of, of what you've just defined here regarding losing uh, that market share, you know, the revenue, the people, and really ultimately going out of business are Kodak and, and BlackBerry to a certain extent. We certainly talk about those examples in the book. Take us through that as a case study, if you will, and to illustrate your point further. Yeah, and everyone thinks about if, you, if you're old enough to remember what Kodak uh, was, you think, oh, that could never happen. And boy, they, they must have been asleep at the wheel. I had the privilege of working with Kodak way back when, when Kodak equaled pictures and uh, they own pictures. Right. And two things challenged Kodak. One is that they were so profitable because the film business had been optimized and they were so good at selling film that the profit margin was so high that anything else they did, including they, they were into digital cameras, they owned a lot of the digital patents. They could have easily, as they say, pivoted from film to digital. But the one thing was holding them back was something we called golden handcuffs. That film was so profitable at Kodak that any other division, any other group not selling film was making less money. And if it was making less money or losing money, the company said, well, you know, we can't, Wall Street won't let us take another $50 million or $100 million out of the film business and put it in a new business. So part of the challenges it taught us is that if you try something new, you have to be prepared to make less money at it than you are today. And many, many companies find that difficult. I'd rather right. look for the you know, final customer and do that. So don't have the strength if you can, to start investing in something that's new and different before people no longer need film, which is what happened to Kodak. By the time they decided to fully get into it, you know, the film market was was rapidly disappearing. The other interesting thing that lesson learned out of it uh, was tied to talent. Board at Kodak had a big decision to make. Did we go after digital way back when? Or, or do we stay a chemical company? Because if you do your history reading, Kodak was a chemical company, you know, because film was a chemical process. And so right. what their real strengths were, was not so much digital, but the real strength was chemicals and chemical processing and engineering. And yet they decided to try digital, even though their DNA, as we said, was mostly chemical and chemical engineers. Well, no surprise that if you're going to compete in a digital space and your talent knows how to do chemistry and engineering, but doesn't know the difference between a, you know, a zero and a one or a, a digital 
code and a, and a chemical code, uh, you're not going to be that successful. So they were unable to attract the right talent to effectively compete in digital. So lots of people say, well, I'm going to get into a different business. And the, the, the lesson we encourage people to say, yes, if you want to go from a dry cleaning store to a donut store, you know, make sure you, know, you don't just read a book on how to make donuts. Make sure you have the right skill set to make donuts, not just okay donuts, but great donuts and the best donuts. And so anytime you're you know, looking to change direction of your business, it's hard enough figuring out where you want to go. But if you decide you want to go left or right or up the street or down the street, make sure that you have the talent and skill to really win at that role, to really do that well, not just say, I can do a okay donut. I'm sure it's the same thing as dry cleaning. Well, and, and I think it's a mindset from the top as well. I, you've, we as businesses, we need those visionaries on the top who are always looking for those warning signals, if you will, right. who have the mindset of what's around the next corner. I want to be you know, at the lead. There's a fork in the road. They're going to be following me. Talk to us about some thoughts regarding the need to continually monitor and shift uh, when need it. Yeah. So the first one, I'll pop back to something you just mentioned with Blackberries. So, you know, I, I, we also talked to lots of people at Blackberry who were there when it was uh, in everyone's hand and who were there when it was in fewer people's hands and when it was, who were there when it went, went away as a consumer good. And one of the things that their leadership was challenged by was that they were arrogant. They believed people wouldn't give up their keyboard. They yeah. saw the iPhone and I said, gee, you know, who's going who's gonna to want to type on a screen? It will never happen. It's a toy. It's a music player. Don't worry about it. So, you know, so their leadership was not looking out and saying, look at all these changes. It was saying, no, we're king of the hill. People love their keyboards. We ask customers every day and their customers say how much I like the keyboard. They never move away. And lo and behold, their leadership was not taking the competition seriously. Even other phone players, Nokia owned the phone business. And they said, gee, you know, our phone is $79. Who's going to pay $500 for a phone? Are you kidding me? It's, it, that, that's a joke. So the headset of a leader needs to be a little bit of the famous Andy Grove, or the uh, founder or CEO of Intel. Only the paranoid survive. You know, mm-hmm. as a leader, you need to be out of in the marketplace looking at what's happening. And you can't assume that anything is a joke. Right. <laughs> you have to take everything seriously. So step one is to get out there. Step two is it's hard to get out there. That was the other thing we found. We went to lots of companies and uh, one of the, another symptom of, companies have gotten trouble is that the leadership has lost what we, you know, what's called the founder's mentality. They, they, they were no longer walking in the store and said, tell me about why you chose that brand. Or, you know, they were sitting in the, in conference rooms. And one of our interviews was with a significant market researcher. And his quote was, you look for the office uh, furthest away from the customer. And that's where you find the leadership of companies that get into trouble. Wow. Um, and it's true. You know, they, it often, is. they, they were in back-to-back meetings on finance and all important things, but they no longer were were reading customer complaints. They no longer were walking the mall. They were no longer, they, they had lost the pulse. They were reading summaries and they lost that sixth sense of what was going to happen. You know, it occurs to me that that is one of the greatest gifts of entrepreneurs, right? right. Uh, is that they've got that vision, that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, the gut you know, the glory, right. and they never want to give up on it. And that a lot of these very, very large businesses um, that you talk about in the book started out that way in some situations, you know, 100 years ago, but they, right. they lose that spirit, which is why so many of them today are acquiring small, nimble, entrepreneurial driven organizations to create that entrepreneurialism within the organization. That mindset is a special one. And, you know, tied to that, we had a great conversation with the folks at Marriott. And 
And one of the things they managed to embed in the culture at Marriott was a piece of this fanaticism with the, with the customer. And one of the quotes that was often said about Bill Marriott, the founder, uh, was that his feet never touched his desk in those days. And what that meant was he was constantly out at the hotels, at the restaurants, talking to the front line, talking to his associates, he didn't call them employees, talking to how the guests were feeling, talking to fluffing the pillows, asking people. And he tried, and a big ad campaign they ran way back when was Bill Marriott on the road <laughs> and yeah. you know, sort of undercover boss, but not undercover. And his being fanatically not at his desk, always out tasting the food, fluffing the pillows, talking to the front desk, talking to customers enabled Marriott to see changes coming well ahead of their competition. Uh, and as such, continuously shifting ahead. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. So we've talked about that, you know, the mindset, um, always looking around that corner, uh, trying to stay ahead of it all. But how ultimately do you assess what really you should be focusing on? That's a million dollar question. And a lot of companies we found get uh, hung up in analysis paralysis. Uh, You know, before Toys R Us went away, we spoke to lots of the people there and people that worked there. And Toys R Us, you know, you didn't have to be great predictor of the future. 10 years ago, five years ago, 15 years ago, to know that people would shop more and more online and that shopping, you know, so everyone knew that was coming. It was no surprise, but what do you do? And so Toys R Us had, you know, developed two interesting choices a long time ago. One was to say, oh, let's compete on price and build huge warehouse type stores that can offer every toy for less, sort of a Costco big box concept. Right. And they began to build those stores. And then they said, no, we think the right answer is also, another group said, we want to give a really high-end experience, uh, which was represented by their store in Times Square, where you could go in and you could speak to someone who knew about toys and education and children, and you could say, look, I have a seven-year-old, and what do you recommend? And you could have somebody take you and explain the category of learning games. And so they pursued both because they couldn't decide which is which. Company half wanted to go left, half wanted to go right. They studied it, and ultimately, you know, uh, they would have been better picking one or the other direction and executing it as best they could. But because they picked two directions, it proved, you know, they were unable to win at either game and at the end fell apart and you couldn't cost reduce your way out. So, you know, part of it is figuring out the right answer is important, but not the most important thing. The most important thing is pick an answer and then execute it really well. Do it brilliantly. Don't hedge your bets. And that's really hard because one of the big challenges facing most, either entrepreneurs, medium-sized, is, you know, you're successful, you're making decent money, and you become risk-averse. You talk to any entrepreneur, whether the founders of FedEx or Fred, uh, Fred Smith, you know, it was always about, they were willing to bet the farm on something they believed in. The NPR show, How I Built This, listen to how many, many successful entrepreneurs, they were, they saw something, all businesses need to solve a problem. They wanted to solve the problem, but they were willing to, to, to really focus and put a bet as opposed to saying, we'll have one team do this, we'll have another team do this, and we'll study it. And so big companies get into analysis paralysis, even medium companies and small companies. And the advice is, yeah, there's never a really right or wrong answer. You can take your, but if you don't make a bet early, by the time you're ready to make the bet, the market might have changed. Well, and breaking out of that analysis and finding a way to stay relative, I think is key. Mm-hmm. We talk about Toys R Us, and I don't believe they adapted to the market need from the standpoint of shopper mentality as yep quickly and uh, succinctly that other brands did. I mean, let's just talk about brick and mortar versus online sales for a minute. Yep. Uh, What did you find out regarding those two 
what seemingly are polar opposites of you know that brick and mortar mentality and and what what it has done to the shopper habit. Yeah, most of them. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, another sort of spin on that was that they know they have to do digital, but yeah, we'll sort of do it okay. And you know, they didn't realize that when they did digital, they have to do it as well as Amazon, uh, and they have to win in both worlds because winning in one world is no longer enough. Winning in the physical is no longer enough, and nor is winning in the digital. So we spoke to some folks early on at Barnes and Noble, another brand that's about to. Uh, uh, touch the third rail. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they talked about how they started, you know, they could have bought Amazon 10 times because it was tiny. They talked about it. They never did anything. But they quickly put together their own little digital group early on to try to compete with it. But they never really funded it. And the online experience at Barnes & Noble was always clunky and terrible. And so they, they sort of went after digital sort of a little bit. But, you know, they didn't go after it the way Amazon did because it was mission critical to Amazon. And so they, they did a little too little too late. And, you know, if you're looking at, a, if you're a retailer, uh, you need to win at digital uh, and you need to stay relevant at retail. And that may mean reinventing what you currently do at retail. There are many examples, whether it's Bonobos and others who have looked at retail and say, yes, you need to offer it. But is it a big store? Is it an experience? Is it a showroom? And it's really hard to both get into a new channel and do really well there and reimagine your existing channel. But uh, success is never easy. Well, it isn't. And I think a lot of brands are even utilizing, even though they, they may have stores close, closing, they're utilizing those stores as entry points for people to learn more about their brands and shop online. Another thing that uh, you know caused many, many companies to struggle to shift to head, we touched on it, is not only is having your leadership team look out and see what's coming, but knowing where to look. And right. when I was at Unilever, we were really fixated on, you know, did you see what Colgate did? And did you see what P&G did? When I worked with Coke, they were very focused on Pepsi. And most companies do a pretty good job of watching people that are right in front of them. And uh, we call that, you know, Joel and I had determined, most companies are pretty good at playing tennis. They're, you look at, you know, I'm bad at tennis, but, you know, if you want to try to do sort of well at it, you have to hit the ball with a person's not. So you become very fixated with the person right in front of you. If you play golf, and I play that badly too, you know, I play with people, but I'm not that focused on what they're doing. I'm more focused on what's the wind, what, is the, what do I have to hit this ball, what's the terrain look like. And so lots of companies just focus on the competitor right in front of them, the, the donut shop down the street, and don't pull back and realize that lots of disruption happens. Gillette did not get disrupted when I worked with them from Schick. They got disrupted from somebody totally out of the game coming up with a new model, a new channel, whether it was Dollar Shave Club or Harry's. So lots of categories, you know, just spent all their time looking at their core competitors, but they find that they were looking at the wrong place to see what they need to do to figure out where to go next. That's some great insight regarding barriers to change um, and the cultural factors, as well as some of those external forces that really inhibit uh, people to to look beyond what seems so obvious to them. Now, changing gears uh, without reinventing the wheel is not necessarily an easy thing to do. And recognizing the difficulties of having to backpedal or play catch up is probably one of the worst scenarios that anybody wants to get in. Provide our listeners some advice regarding making sure that they're not put in that specific uh, example. Yeah, I, I think some of the things we covered earlier on will help them, you know, look around, you know, get out of your office, get out of your bubble. Don't assume your competition is, you know, not really good. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't assume you're going to get disrupted by uh, 
someone else constantly have a little bit of the paranoid. But once you decide to shift, I think the first thing is, you know, get some focus and start as early as you can. Two is, you know, iterate, as everyone talks about, you know, it's unlikely you'll hit it, but ultimately on the first try, but ultimately the winner in the marketplace is not the first person to have the right idea, but the first person to really execute it well. And that's harder than, so the first step is to make sure you, what you need to do, but second is to get the right DNA, talented. But then really figure out how to do it well. And lots of examples, you know, the, the iPad was not the first tablet. You know, lots of people had tablets, HP, uh, Dell, you know, but they were the first one to get it right. And so lots of success in the marketplace is driven by the first group to execute it well. And it goes down to any business. We had a fascinating conversation because when we thought about who's going to be, what what sort of organizations are going to run into trouble, we thought, you know, who goes to, what, what do libraries do? You know, people are reading less, you know, you don't need to, you, everything's available digitally. So we, we had a great conversation with a local library in Greenwich, Connecticut, and they reimagined early on that they really, you know, you don't have to, again, you don't have to hire market forecasters to realize people are going to be taking less books out to borrow. And they said, we need to change what, our vision is for a library. And in this case, I said, we need to be the hub of Greenwich. We need to be a mix of a WeWork, a startup advisor, a tech store, and a consulting company. Mm -hmm. And so they reimagined the library. And so if you have a technology problem, your iPhone doesn't talk to your computer, and you happen to have a you know, Android-based and an iOS-based, you have a tech person there that understood how to solve your problem, unlike going to an existing. If you needed office space to work, they had cubicles and support. If you had questions on researching a business idea, their librarians were retooled to figure out how to how to how to be an inf how to really do a search? Everyone thinks they know how to use Google. You know, sitting next to the smartest kid in class, you just type it in. But really understanding how to search for information and doing it efficiently and getting the right answer, with the amount of quote unquote false answers online <laughs> or false facts, uh, is a skill set. So they you know early on reimagined that we have to figure out a new mission, new purpose, and then they had the time and the money. Uh, to reimagine even something as slow moving as a municipal library. It's a snail, <laughs> I know. Yeah. And, and certainly this uh, reimagination, you have to be able to make sure that you're educating your clients um, yep. in a very eloquent way. And, and in some situations, we are changing habits. How do brands do that without alienating loyal customers? Yeah, that's also what makes change hard because sometimes, you know, yeah, lots of companies don't do a change because they might, they might lose a few customers or they might, you know, need to lower their price on their biggest selling line. And you know, what are they going to do to replace it? And, but if everyone knows that if you don't obsolete yourself and then launch something new, somebody else will obsolete you for you. <laughs> so, um, you know, part of it is, uh, yes, current customers are key. But often current customers are not the ones that would see the change coming until by the time your current customers are prepared to move on to something else. Again, it's one of those, gee, I wish I knew that a couple of years ago. Well, okay. What is, if you're to sum all of this up, <laughs> the mm -hmm. secret sauce, what do the best organizations know about staying the best in a fast paid, a fast changing environment rather? I, I think it's, it's about, just going back to being an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. going back and saying, my job is to solve a problem. Is our company solving a problem? Are our customers' problems changing? And how do we make sure that we solve problems every day 
in a market that's changing. And that's hard because it used to be you set up a business and you sold toys. And we did a great conversation with Hasbro. And for years, they sold Monopoly and Risk and you know, people would buy it every year on the holidays and life didn't change that much. And all of a sudden, the toy business got shaken up. And so they realized that they were not only in the toy business, they needed to be in the entertainment business. So they brought in people from Hollywood and they really got smart about making movies themselves, connecting with movies. So, you know, it wasn't gave up on the toy business, but they had to really say that toys aren't solving problems for parents and kids the way they did when I was a kid. So what do we do? And what types of toys are kids playing with today? And, and what types of toys will they be playing with tomorrow, digital and virtual? And they had the courage to reimagine what a toy company was, even though they still didn't change the name and it's still Hasbro. Yeah, I love it. The book is Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast-Changing World. Alan Adamson, it has been such a pleasure talking to you today. And let's remember, or our listeners should be asking themselves this question, are you good at playing tennis or are you good at playing golf? Thank you for your appearance on the Integrate and Ignite podcast. Thank you. This episode is complete, but the inspiration has just begun. Head over to avocetcommunications.com for show notes and more aha moments. Tune in regularly to ignite your integrated business and marketing strategies with Lori Jones and the Integrate and Ignite podcast.